0: Welcome to Little Friday, featuring Louisa May Alcott's book Little Women. Read by Amber Jacoba. Sponsored by Gals Guide Chapter one Playing Pilgrims Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents, grumbled Joe, lying on the rug. "'It's so dreadful to be poor,' sighed Meg, looking down at her old dress. "'I don't think it's fair for some girls to have plenty of pretty things "'and other girls nothing at all,' added little Amy with an injured sniff. "'We've got father and mother and each other,' said Beth contentedly from her corner. "'The four young faces on which the firelight shone brightened at the cheerful words, "'but darkened again as Joe said sadly. "'We haven't got father and shall not have him for a long time,' She didn't say perhaps never, but each silently added it, thinking of Father far away where the fighting was. Nobody spoke for a minute, then Meg said in an altered tone, You know the reason Mother proposed not having any presents this Christmas was because it's going to be a hard winter for everyone, and she thinks we ought not to spend money for pleasure when our men are suffering so in the army. We can't do much, but we can make our little sacrifices and ought to do it gladly. But I am afraid I don't. And Meg shook her head as she thought regretfully of all the pretty things she wanted, but I don't think the little we should spend would do any good. We've each got a dollar, and the army wouldn't be much helped by our giving that. I agree not to expect anything from Mother or you, but I do want to buy Undine and Sintram for myself. I've wanted it so long, said Joe, who was a bookworm. I plan to spend mine on new music, said Beth with a little sigh, which no one heard but the hearthbrush and kettle holder. "'I shall get a nice box of Faber's drawing pencils. I really need them,' said Amy decidedly. "'Mother didn't say anything about our money, "'and she won't wish us to give up everything. "'Let's each buy what we want and have a little fun. "'I'm sure we work hard enough to earn it,' cried Joe, "'examining the heels of her shoes in a gentlemanly manner. "'I know I do, teaching those tiresome children nearly all day "'when I'm longing to enjoy myself at home,' "'began Meg in the complaining tone again. "'You don't have half such a hard time as I do,' said Joe. How would you like to be shut up for hours with a nervous, fussy old lady who keeps you trotting, is never satisfied, and worries you till you're ready to fly out of the window or cry? It's naughty to fret, but I do think washing dishes and keeping things tidy is the worst work in the world. It makes me cross, and my hands get so stiff I can't practice well at all. And Beth looked at her rough hands with a sigh that anyone could hear that time. I don't believe any of you suffer as I do, cried Amy. Amy? "'For you don't have to go to school with impertinent girls "'who plague you if you don't know your lessons "'and laugh at your dresses and label your father if he isn't rich "'and insult you when your nose isn't nice. "'If you mean libel, I'd say so, "'and not talk about labels as if Papa was a pickle bottle,' "'advised Joe, laughing. "'I know what I mean, and you needn't be so satirical about it. "'It's proper to use good words and improve your vocabulary,' "'returned Amy with dignity. "'Don't peck at one another, children. "'Don't you wish we had the money Papa lost when we were little, Joe?' Dear me, how happy and good we'd be if we had no worries, said Meg, who could remember better times. You said the other day you thought we were a deal happier than the king children, for they were fighting and fretting all the time in spite of their money. So I did, Beth. Well, I think we are, for though we do have to work, we make fun for ourselves and are a pretty jolly set, as Joe would say. Joe does use such slang words, observed Amy, with a reproving look at the long figure stretched on the rug. Jo immediately sat up, put her hands in her pockets, and began to whistle. Don't, Joe, it's so boyish. That's why I do it. I detest rude unladylike girls. I hate affected niminy piminy chits. Birds in their little nests agree, sang Beth, the peacemaker, with such a funny face that both sharp voices softened to a laugh, and the pecking ended for that time. Really, girls, you are both to be blamed, said Meg, beginning to lecture in her elder sisterly fashion. You are old enough to leave off boyish tricks and to behave better, Josephine. It didn't matter so much when you were a little girl, but now you are so tall and turn up your hair. You should remember that you are a young lady. I'm not, and if turning up my hair makes me one, I'll wear it in two tails till I'm twenty, cried Jo, pulling off her net and shaking down a chestnut mane. I hate to think I've got to grow up and be Miss March and wear long gowns and look as prim as a china aster. It's bad enough to be a girl anyway when I like boys' games and work and manners. I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy, and it's worse than ever now, for I'm dying to go and fight with Papa, and I can only stay at home and knit like a pokey old woman. And Joe shook the blue army sock till the needles rattled like castanets and her ball bounded across the room. Poor Joe, It's too bad, but it can't be helped. So you must try to be contented with making your name boyish and playing brother to us girls, said Beth. "'stroking the rough head at her knee with a hand "'that all the dishwashing and dusting in the world "'could not make ungentle in its touch. "'As for you, Amy,' continued Meg, "'you are altogether too particular and prim. "'Your airs are funny now, "'but you'll grow up an affected little goose "'if you don't take care. "'I like your nice manners and refined way of speaking "'when you don't try to be elegant, "'but your absurd words are as bad as Joe's slang. "'If Joe is a tomboy and Amy a goose, "'what am I, please?' asked Beth, ready to share the lecture. You're a dear, and nothing else, answered Meg warmly, and no one contradicted her, for the mouse was the pet of the family. As young readers like to know how people look, we will take this moment to give them a little sketch of the four sisters who sat knitting away in the twilight while the December snow fell quietly without, and the fire crackled cheerfully within. It was a comfortable old room, though the carpet was faded and the furniture very plain, for a good picture or two hung on the walls, books filled the recesses, Chrysanthemums and Christmas roses bloomed in the windows, and a pleasant atmosphere of home peace pervaded it. Margaret, the eldest of the four, was sixteen and very pretty, being plump and fair, with large eyes, plenty of soft brown hair, a sweet mouth and white hands, of which she was rather vain. Fifteen-year-old Joe was very tall, thin and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in her way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes, which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce, funny, or thoughtful. Her long, thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, big hands and feet, a flyaway look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Elizabeth, or Beth as everyone called her, was a rosy, smooth-haired, bright-eyed girl of thirteen, with a shy manner, a timid voice, and a peaceful expression, which was seldom disturbed. Her father called her Little Tranquility, and the name suited her excellently, for she seemed to live in a happy world of her own, only venturing out to meet the few whom she trusted and loved. Amy, though the youngest, was a most important person, in her own opinion at least, a regular snow maiden with blue eyes and yellow hair, curling on her shoulders, pale and slender and always carrying herself like a young lady mindful of her manners. What the characters of the four sisters were, we will leave to be found out. The clock struck six, and having swept up the hearth, Beth put a pair of slippers down to warm. Somehow the sight of the old shoes had a good effect upon the girls, for mother was coming, and everyone brightened to welcome her. Meg stopped lecturing and lighted the lamp. Amy got out of the easy chair without being asked, and Joe forgot how tired she was as she sat up to hold the slippers nearer to the blaze. They are quite worn out. Marmee must have a new pair. I thought I'd get her some with my dollar, said Beth. No, I shall, cried Amy. I'm the oldest, began Meg, but Joe cut in with a decided. I'm the man of the family now Papa is away, and I shall provide the slippers, for he told me to take special care of Mother while he was gone. I'll tell you what we'll do, said Beth. Let's each get her something for Christmas and not get anything for ourselves. That's like you, dear. What will we get? exclaimed Joe. Everyone thought soberly for a minute, then Meg announced as if the idea was suggested by the sight of her own pretty hands. I shall get her a nice pair of gloves. Army shoes, best to be had, cried Joe. Some handkerchiefs all hemmed, said Beth. "'I'll get a little bottle of cologne. "'She likes it, and it won't cost much, "'so I'll have some left to buy my pencils,' added Amy. "'How will we give the things?' asked Meg. "'Put them on the table, and bring her in, "'and see her open the bundles. "'Don't you remember how we used to do on our birthdays?' answered Joe. "'I used to be so frightened when it was my turn "'to sit in the big chair with the crown on "'and see you all come marching round to give the presents with a kiss. "'I liked the things and the kisses.' "'But it was dreadful to have you sit looking at me while I opened the bundles,' said Beth, who was toasting her face in the bread for tea at the same time. "'Let Marmy think we are getting things for ourselves, and then surprise her. "'We must go shopping tomorrow afternoon, Meg. "'There is so much to do about the play for Christmas night,' said Jo, marching up and down with her hands behind her back and her nose in the air. "'I don't mean to act any more after this time. "'I'm getting too old for such things,' observed Meg, who was as much a child as ever about dressing up frolics. "'You won't stop, I know, as long as you can trail round in a white gown with your hair down and wear gold paper jewelry. You're the best actress we've got, and there'll be an end of everything if you quit the boards,' said Joe. "'We ought to rehearse tonight. Come here, Amy, and do the fainting scene, for you are as stiff as a poker in that.' "'I can't help it. I never saw anyone faint, and I don't choose to make myself all black and blue tumbling flat as you do. If I can go down easily, I'll drop. If I can't, I shall fall into a chair and be graceful. I don't care if Hugo does come at me with a pistol.' returned Amy, who was not gifted with dramatic power, but was chosen because she was small enough to be borne out shrieking by the villain of the piece. Do it this way. Clasp your hands so and stagger across the room, crying frantically, "Rodrigo, Save me! Save me! And away went Joe with a melodramatic scream which was truly thrilling. Amy followed, but she poked her hands out stiffly before her and jerked herself along as if she went by machinery, and her ow was more suggestive of pins being run into her than of fear and anguish. Joe gave it a sparing groan, and Meg laughed outright, while Beth let her bread burn as she watched the fun with interest. <laughs> it's no use. Do the best you can when the time comes, and if the audience laughed, don't blame me. Come on, Meg. Then things went smoothly, for Don Pedro defied the world in a speech of two pages without a single break. Hagar, the witch, chanted an awful incantation over her kettle full of simmering toads with weird effect. Roderigo rent his chains asunder manfully. And Hugo died in agonies of remorse and arsenic with a wild Ha! Ha. It's the best we've had yet, said Meg, as the dead villain sat up and rubbed his elbows. I don't see how you can write and act such splendid things, Joe. You're a regular Shakespeare, exclaimed Beth, who firmly believed that her sisters were gifted with wonderful genius in all things. Not quite, replied Joe modestly. I do think the witch's curse in operatic tragedy is rather a nice thing, but I'd like to try Macbeth, if we only had a trap door for Banquo. I always wanted to do the killing part. Is that a dagger that I see before me? muttered Jo, rolling her eyes and clutching at the air as she had seen a famous tragedian do. No, it's the toasting fork with mother's shoe on it instead of the bread. Beth's stage struck, cried Meg, and the rehearsal ended in a general burst of laughter. "'Glad to find you so merry, my girls,' said a cheery voice at the door, and actors and audience turned to welcome a tall, motherly lady with a can-I-help-you-look about her which was truly delightful. She was not elegantly dressed, but a noble-looking woman, and the girls thought the grey cloak and unfashionable bonnet covered the most splendid mother in the world. "'Well, dearies, how have you got on today? There was so much to do getting the boxes ready to go tomorrow that I didn't come home to dinner. Has anyone called, Beth? How is your cold, Meg?' "'Joe, you look tired to death. Come and kiss me, baby.' While making these maternal inquiries, Mrs. March got her wet things off, her warm slippers on, and, sitting down in the easy chair, drew Amy to her lap, preparing to enjoy the happiest hour of her busy day. The girls flew about, trying to make things comfortable, each in her own way. Meg arranged the tea table. Joe brought wood and set chairs, dropping, overturning, and clattering everything she touched. Beth trotted to and fro between parlor and kitchen, quiet and busy, while Amy gave directions to everyone as she sat with her hands folded. As they gathered about the table, Mrs. March said, with a particularly happy face, I've got a treat for you after supper. A quick, bright smile went round like a streak of sunshine. Bess clapped her hands, regardless of the biscuit she held, and Joe tossed up her napkin, crying, A letter! A letter! Three cheers for Father! Yes, a nice, long letter. He is well, and thinks he shall get through the cold season better than we feared. "'He sends all sorts of loving wishes for Christmas, and an especial message to you girls,' said Mrs. March, patting her pocket as if she had got a treasure there. "'Hurry and get done! Don't stop to quirk your little finger and simper over your plate, Amy,' cried Joe, choking in her tea and dropping her bread, butter side down on the carpet, in her haste to get at the treat. "'Beth ate no more, but crept away to sit in her shadowy corner and brood over the delight to come till the others were ready.' I think it was so splendid in father to go as a chaplain when he was too old to be drafted and not strong enough for a soldier, said Meg warmly. Don't I wish I could go as a drummer, a vivand, what's-its-name, or a nurse, so I could be near him and help him, exclaimed Joe with a groan. It must be very disagreeable to sleep in a tent and eat all sorts of bad-tasting things and drink out of a tin mug, sighed Amy. When will he come home, Marmee? asked Beth with a little quiver in her voice. Not for many months, dear, unless he is sick. He will stay and do his work faithfully as long as he can, and we won't ask for him back a minute sooner than he can be spared. Now come and hear the letter. They all drew to the fire, mother in the big chair with Beth at her feet, Meg and Amy perched on either arm of the chair, and Joe leaning on the back, where no one would see any sign of emotion if the letter should happen to be touching. Very few letters were written in those hard times that were not touching, especially those which fathers sent home. In this one, little was said of the hardships endured, the dangers faced, or the homesickness conquered. It was a cheerful, hopeful letter, full of lively descriptions of camp life, marches, and military news, and only at the end did the writer's heart overflow with fatherly love and longing for the little girls at home. Give them all my dear love and a kiss. Tell them I think of them by day, pray for them by night, and find my best comfort in their affection at all times. A year seems very long to wait before I see them. But remind them that while we wait, we may all work, so that these hard days need not be wasted. I know they will remember all I said to them, that they will be loving children to you, will do their duty faithfully, fight their bosom enemies bravely, and conquer themselves so beautifully that when I come back to them I may be fonder and prouder than ever of my little women. Everybody sniffed when they came to that part. Jo wasn't ashamed of the great tear that dropped off the end of her nose and Amy never minded the rumpling of her curls as she hid her face on her mother's shoulder and sobbed out. I am a selfish girl, but I'll truly try to be better, so he mayn't be disappointed in me by and by. We all will, cried Meg. I think too much of my looks and hate to work, but won't any more if I can help it. I'll try and be what he loves to call me, a little woman, and not be rough and wild, but do my duty here instead of wanting to be somewhere else, said Joe thinking that keeping her temper at home was a much harder task than facing a rebel or two down south. Beth said nothing, but wiped away her tears with the blue army sock and began to knit with all her might, losing no time in doing the duty that lay nearest her, while she resolved in her quiet little soul to be all that father hoped to find her when the year brought round the happy coming home. Mrs. March broke the silence that followed Joe's words by saying in her cheery voice, Do you remember how you used to play Pilgrim's Progress when you were little things? Nothing delighted you more than to have me tie my peace bags on your backs for burdens. Give you hats and sticks and rolls of paper and let you travel through the house from the cellar, which was the city of destruction, up, up, to the housetop, where you had all the lovely things you could collect to make a celestial city. What fun it was, especially going by the lions, fighting Apollyon, and passing through the valley where the hobgoblins were, said Joe. I liked the place where the bundles fell off and tumbled downstairs, said Meg. My favorite part was when we came out on the flat roof where our flowers and the arbors and pretty things were, and all stood and sung for joy up there in the sunshine, said Beth, smiling, as if that pleasant moment had come back to her. I don't remember much about it, except that I was afraid of the cellar and the dark entry, and always liked the cake and milk we had up at the top. If I wasn't too old for such things, I'd rather like to play it over again, said Amy, who began to talk of renouncing childish things at the mature age of twelve. <laughs> we never are too old for this, my dear. "'because it is a play we are playing all the time in one way or another. "'Our burdens are here, our road is before us, "'and the longing for goodness and happiness "'is the guide that leads us through many troubles and mistakes "'to the peace which is a true celestial city. "'Now, my little pilgrims, suppose you begin again, "'not in play, but in earnest, "'and see how far on you can get before Father comes home.' "'Really, Mother? Where are our bundles?' asked Amy, who was a very literal young lady.' Each of you told what your burden was just now, except Beth. I rather think she hasn't got any, said her mother. Yes, I have. Mine is dishes and dusters and envying girls with nice pianos and being afraid of people. Beth's bundle was such a funny one that everybody wanted to laugh, but nobody did, for it would have hurt her feelings very much. Let us do it, said Meg thoughtfully. It is only another name for trying to be good, and the story may help us. For though we do want to be good, it's hard work, and we forget, and don't do our best. We were in the slough of despond tonight, and Mother came and pulled us out as help did in the book. We ought to have our role of directions, like Christian. What shall we do about that? Asked Jo, delighted with the fancy which lent to little romance to the very dull task of doing her duty. Look under your pillows Christmas morning, and you will find your guidebook, replied Mrs. March. They talked over the new plan while old Hannah cleared the table, then out came the four little work baskets, and the needles flew as the girl made sheets for Aunt March. It was uninteresting sewing, but tonight no one grumbled. They adopted Joe's plan of dividing the long seams into four parts and calling the quarters Europe, Asia, Africa, and America, and in that way got on capitally, especially when they talked about the different countries as they stitched their way through them. At nine, they stopped work and sung, as usual, before they went to bed. No one but Beth could get much music out of the old piano, but she had a way of softly touching the yellow keys, and making a pleasant accompaniment to the simple songs they sung. Meg had a voice like a flute, and she and her mother led the little choir. Amy chirped like a cricket, and Joe wandered through the airs at her own sweet will, always coming out at the wrong place with a croak or a quaver that spoilt the most pensive tune. They had always done this from the time they could lisp, crinkle, crinkle, little tar, and it had become a household custom for the mother was a born singer. The first sound in the morning was her voice, as she went about the house singing like a lark, and the last sound at night was the same cheery sound, for the girls never grew too old for that familiar lullaby. CHAPTER TWO A MERRY CHRISTMAS Joe was the first to wake in the grey dawn of Christmas morning. No stockings hung at the fireplace, and for a moment she felt as much disappointed as she did long ago, when her little sock fell down because it was so crammed with goodies. Then she remembered her mother's promise, and, slipping her hand under her pillow, drew out a little crimson-covered book. She knew it very well, for it was that beautiful old story of the best life ever lived, and Joe felt that it was a true guidebook for any pilgrim going the long journey. She woke Meg with a Merry Christmas, and bade her see what was under her pillow. The green-covered book appeared, with the same picture inside, and a few words written by their mother, which made their one present very precious in their eyes. Presently, Beth and Amy woke to rummage and find their little books also, one dove-colored, the other blue, and all sat looking at and talking about them while the East grew rosy with the coming day. In spite of her small vanities, Margaret had a sweet and pious nature, which unconsciously influenced her sisters, especially Jo, who loved her very tenderly, and obeyed her because her advice was so gently given. "'Girls,' said Meg seriously, looking from the tumbled head beside her to the two little night-capped ones in the room beyond. Mother wants us to read and love and mind these books, and we must begin at once. We used to be faithful about it, but since father went away, and all this war trouble unsettled us, we have neglected many things. You can do as you please, but I shall keep my book on the table here, and read a little every morning as soon as I wake, for I know it will do me good and help me through the day. Then she opened her new book and began to read. Joe put her arm round her, and leaning cheek to cheek, read also, with the quiet expression so seldom seen on her restless face. "'How good Meg is. Come, Amy, let's do as they do. I'll help you with the hard words, and they'll explain things if we don't understand,' whispered Beth, very much impressed by the pretty books and her sister's example. "'I'm glad mine is blue,' said Amy, and then the rooms were very still while the pages were softly turned, and the winter sunshine crept in to touch the bright heads and serious faces with a Christmas greeting. "'Where is Mother?' asked Meg, as she and Joe ran down to thank her for their gifts half an hour later. "'Goodness only knows,' "'Some poor creature came a beggin', and your ma went straight off to see what was needed. "'There never was such a woman for giving away vittles and drink, clothes and firein'. replied Hannah, "'who had lived with the family since Meg was born, and was considered by them all more as a friend than a servant. "'She will be back soon, I think, so fry your cakes and have everything ready,' said Meg, "'looking over the presents which were collected in a basket and kept under the sofa, "'ready to be produced at the proper time. "'Why, where is Amy's bottle of cologne?' she added, as the little flask did not appear." She took it out a minute ago, and went off with it to put a ribbon on it or some such notion, replied Joe, dancing about the room to take the first stiffness off the new army slippers. How nice my handkerchiefs look, don't they? Hannah washed and ironed them for me, and I marked them all myself, said Beth, looking proudly at the somewhat uneven letters which had cost her such labor. Bless the child, she's gone and put Mother on them instead of M. March. How funny, cried Joe, taking up one. Isn't it right? I thought it was better to do so, because Meg's initials are M.M., and I don't want anyone to use these but Marmee, said Beth, looking troubled. It's all right, dear, and a very pretty idea. Quite sensible, too, for no one can ever mistake now. It will please her very much, I know, said Meg, with a frown for Joe and a smile for Beth. There's Mother. Hide the basket, quick, cried Joe, as a door slammed and steps sounded in the hall. Amy came in hastily and looked rather abashed when she saw her sisters all waiting for her. Where have you been, and what are you hiding behind you? asked Meg, surprised to see by her hood and cloak that lazy Amy had been out so early. Don't laugh at me, Joe. I didn't mean anyone should know till the time came. I only meant to change the little bottle for a big one, and I gave all my money to get it, and I'm truly trying not to be selfish any more. As she spoke, Amy showed the handsome flask, which replaced the cheap one, and looked so earnest and humble in her little effort to forget herself, that Meg hugged her on the spot, and Joe pronounced her a Trump while Beth ran to the window and picked her finest rose to ornament the stately bottle. You see, I felt ashamed of my present after reading and talking about being good this morning, so I ran round the corner and changed it the minute I was up, and I'm so glad, for mine is the handsomest now. Another bang of the street door sent the basket under the sofa and the girls to the table, eager for breakfast. Merry Christmas, Marmee! Many of them! Thank you for our books! We read some and mean to every day! they cried in chorus. "'Merry Christmas, little daughters. I'm glad you began at once and hope you will keep on. But I want to say one word before we sit down. Not far away from here lies a poor woman with a little newborn baby. Six children are huddled into one bed to keep from freezing, for they have no fire. There is nothing to eat over there. And the oldest boy came to tell me they were suffering hunger and cold. My girls, will you give them your breakfast as a Christmas present?' They were all unusually hungry, having waited nearly an hour, and for a minute no one spoke. Only a minute, for Joe exclaimed impetuously, I'm so glad you came before we began. May I go and help carry the things to the poor little children? asked Beth eagerly. I shall take the cream and the muffins, added Amy, heroically giving up the articles she most liked. Meg was already covering the buckwheats and piling the bread into one big plate. I thought you'd do it, said Mrs. March, smiling as if satisfied. You shall all go and help me, and when we come back we will have bread and milk for breakfast and make it up at dinner time. They were soon ready, and the procession set out. Fortunately it was early, and they went through the back streets, so few people saw them, and no one laughed at the queer party. A poor, bare, miserable room it was, with broken windows, no fire, ragged bedclothes, a sick mother, wailing baby, and a group of pale, hungry children, cuddled under one old quilt, trying to keep warm. How the big eyes stared and the blue lips smiled as the girls went in. Ach, mein Gott! It is good angels come to us, said the poor woman, crying for joy. Funny angels in hoods and mittens, said Joe, and set them laughing. In a few minutes it really did seem as if kind spirits had been at work there. Hannah, who had carried wood, made a fire, and stopped up the broken panes with old hats and her own cloak. Mrs. March gave the mother tea and gruel, and comforted her with promises of help, while she dressed the little baby as tenderly as if it had been her own. The girls, meantime, spread the table, set the children round the fire, and fed them like so many hungry birds, laughing, talking, and trying to understand the funny broken English. Das ist gut, die Engelkinder, cried the poor things, as they ate, and warmed their purple hands at the comfortable blaze. The girls had never been called angel children before, and thought it very agreeable especially Joe, who had been considered a Sancho ever since she was born. That was a very happy breakfast, though they didn't get any of it, and when they went away, leaving comfort behind, I think they were not in all the city for merrier people than the hungry little girls who gave away their breakfasts and contented themselves with bread and milk on Christmas morning. That's loving our neighbor better than ourselves, and I like it, said Meg, as they set out their presents while their mother was upstairs collecting clothes for the poor Hummel's. Not a very splendid show, but there was a great deal of love done up in the few little bundles, and the tall vase of red roses, white chrysanthemums, and trailing vines which stood in the middle gave quite an elegant air to the table. "'She's coming!' "'Strike up, Beth! Open the door, Amy! Three cheers for Marmy, cried Joe, prancing about while Meg went to conduct Mother to the seat of honor. Beth played her gayest march, Amy threw open the door, and Meg enacted escort with great dignity." Mrs. March was both surprised and touched, and smiled with her eyes full as she examined her presents and read the little notes which accompanied them. The slippers went on at once, a new handkerchief was slipped into her pocket, well-scented with Amy's cologne, the rose was fastened in her bosom, and the nice gloves were pronounced a perfect fit. There was a good deal of laughing and kissing and explaining in the simple loving fashion which makes these home festivals so pleasant at the time, so sweet to remember long afterward, and then all fell to work. The morning charities and ceremonies took so much time that the rest of the day was devoted to preparations for the evening festivities. Being still too young to go off into the theater, and not rich enough to afford any great outlay for private performances, the girls put their wits to work, and, necessity being the mother of invention, made whatever they needed. Very clever were some of their productions. Pasteboard guitars, antique lamps made of old-fashioned butter boats covered with silver paper, gorgeous robes of old cotton glittering with tin spangles from a pickle factory and armor covered with the same useful diamond-shaped bits, left in sheets when the lids of tin-preserve pots were cut out. The furniture was used to being turned topsy-turvy, and the big chamber was the scene of many innocent revels. No gentlemen were admitted, so Jo played male parts to her heart's content, and took immense satisfaction in a pair of russet leather boots given her by a friend, who knew a lady who knew an actor. These boots, an old foil and a slash doublet once used by an artist for some picture, were Joe's chief treasures and appeared on all occasions. The smallness of the company made it necessary for the two principal actors to take several parts apiece, and they certainly deserved some credit for the hard work they did in learning three or four different parts, whisking in and out of various costumes and managing the stage besides— It was excellent drill for their memories, a harmless amusement, and employed many hours which otherwise would have been idle, lonely, or spent in less profitable society. On Christmas night, a dozen girls piled onto the bed, which was the dress circle, and sat before the blue and yellow chintz curtains in a most flattering state of expectancy. There was a good deal of rustling and whispering behind the curtain, a trifle of lamp smoke and an occasional giggle from Amy, who was apt to get hysterical in the excitement of the moment. Presently a bell sounded, the curtains flew apart, and the operatic tragedy began. A gloomy wood, according to the one playbill, was represented by a few shrubs in pots, green bays on the floor, and a cave in the distance. This cave was made with a clothes horse for a roof, bureaus for walls, and in it was a small furnace in full blast with a black pot on it and an old witch bending over it. The stage was dark, and the glow of the furnace had a fine effect. "'especially as real steam issued from the kettle "'when the witch took off the cover. "'A moment was allowed for the first thrill to subside. "'Then Hugo, the villain, stalked in "'with a clanking sword at his side, "'a slouched hat, black beard, "'mysterious cloak, and the boots. "'After pacing to and fro in much agitation, "'he struck his forehead and burst out in a wild strain, "'singing of his hatred to Rodrigo, "'his love for Zara, "'and his pleasing resolution to kill the one and win the other.' The gruff tones of Hugo's voice with an occasional shout when his feelings overcame him were very impressive, and the audience applauded the moment he paused for breath. Bowing with the air of one accustomed to public praise, he stole to the cavern and ordered Hagar to come forth with a commanding, What ho, minion, I need thee! Out came Meg, with grey horsehair hanging about her face, a red and black robe, a staff and cabalistic signs upon her cloak. Hugo demanded a potion to make Zara adore him, and one to destroy Rodrigo. Hagar, in fine, dramatic melody, promised both, and proceeded to call up the spirit who would bring the love-filter. Hither, hither, from thy home, airy sprite I bid thee come. Born of roses fed on dew, charms and potions canst thou brew? Bring me here with elfin speed the fragrant filter which I need. Make it sweet and swift and strong. Spirit, answer now my song. A soft strain of music sounded, and then at the back of the cave appeared a little figure in cloudy white, with glittering wings, golden hair, and a garland of roses on its head. Waving a wand, it sang, Hither I come from my airy home, afar in the silver moon. Take the magic spell and use it well, or its power will vanish soon. And dropping a small, gilded bottle at the witch's feet, the spirit vanished. Another chant from Hagar produced another apparition. Not a lovely one, for with a bang, an ugly black imp appeared, and having croaked a reply, tossed a dark bottle at Hugo, and disappeared with a mocking laugh. Having warbled his thanks and put the potions in his boots, Hugo departed, and Hagar informed the audience that, as he had killed a few of her friends in times past, she has cursed him and intends to thwart his plans and be revenged on him. Then the curtain fell, and the audience reposed and ate candy while discussing the merits of the play. A good deal of hammering went on before the curtain rose again, but when it became evident what a masterpiece of stage carpentering had been got up, no one murmured at the delay. It was truly superb. A tower rose to the ceiling, halfway up appeared a window, with a lamp burning at it, and behind the white curtain appeared Zara in a lovely blue and silver dress, waiting for Rodrigo. He came in gorgeous array, with plumed cap, red cloak, chestnut love locks, a guitar, and the boots, of course. Kneeling at the foot of the tower, he sang a serenade in melting tones. Zara replied, and, after a musical dialogue, consented to fly. Then came the grand effect of the play. Roderigo produced a rope ladder with five steps to it, threw up one end, and invited Zara to descend. Timidly, she crept from her lattice, put her hand on Roderigo's shoulder, and was about to leap gracefully down, when, alas, alas for Zara, she forgot her train. It caught in the window, the tower tottered, leaned forward, fell with a crash, and buried the unhappy lovers in the ruins. A universal shriek arose as the russet boots waved wildly from the wreck, and a golden head emerged, exclaiming, I told you so! I told you so! With wonderful presence of mind, Don Pedro, the cruel sire, rushed in, dragged out his daughter with a hasty aside. Don't laugh. Act as if it was all all right. And, ordering Rodrigo up, banished him from the kingdom with wrath and scorn. So decidedly shaken by the fall of the tower upon him, Roderigo defied the old gentleman and refused to stir. This dauntless example fired Zara. She also defied her sire, and he ordered them both to the deepest dungeons of the castle. A stout little retainer came in with chains and led them away, looking very much frightened, and evidently forgetting the speech he ought to have made. Act third was the castle hall, and here Hagar appeared, having come to free the lovers and finish Hugo. She hears him coming, and hides sees him put the potions into two cups of wine, and bid the timid little servant bear them to the captives in their cells and tell them I shall come anon. The servant takes Hugo aside to tell him something, and Hagar changes the cups for two others which are harmless. Ferdinando, the minion, carries them away, and Hagar puts back the cup which holds the poison meant for Roderigo. Hugo, getting thirsty after a long warble, drinks it, loses his wits, and after a good deal of clutching and stamping, falls flat and dies while well, Hagar informs him what she has done in the song of exquisite power and melody. This was a truly thrilling scene, though some persons might have thought that the sudden tumbling down of a quantity of long hair rather marred the effect of the villain's death. He was called before the curtain, and with great propriety appeared, leading Hagar, whose singing was considered more wonderful than all the rest of the performance put together. Act fourth displayed the despairing Rodrigo on the point of stabbing himself, because he has been told that Zara has deserted him. Just as the dagger is at his heart, a lovely song is sung under his window, informing him that Zara is true, but in danger, and he can save her, if he will. A key is thrown in, which unlocks the door, and in a spasm of rapture he tears off his chains and rushes away to find and rescue his lady love. Act V opened with a stormy scene between Zara and Don Pedro. He wishes her to go into a convent, but she won't hear of it, and after a touching appeal is about to faint, when Roderigo dashes in and demands her hand— Don Pedro refuses, because he is not rich. They shout and gesticulate tremendously, but cannot agree, and Roderigo is about to bear away the exhausted Zara when the timid servant enters with a letter and a bag from Hagar, who has mysteriously disappeared. The letter informs the party that she bequeaths untold wealth to the young pair and an awful doom to Don Pedro if he does not make them happy. The bag is opened, and several quarts of tin money shower down upon the stage, till it is quite glorified with the glitter. This entirely softens the stern sire. He consents without a murmur. All join in a joyful chorus, and the curtain falls upon the lovers kneeling to receive Don Pedro's blessing and attitudes of the most romantic grace. Tumultuous applause followed, but received an unexpected check for the cot bed on which the dress circle was built suddenly shut up, and extinguished the enthusiastic audience. Rodrigo and Don Pedro flew to the rescue, and all were taken out unhurt, though many were speechless with laughter. The excitement had hardly subsided when Hannah appeared, with Mrs. March's compliments and with the ladies' walk-down to supper. This was a surprise, even to the actors, and when they saw the table they looked at one another in rapturous amazement. It was like Marmee to get up a little treat for them, but anything so fine as this was unheard of since the departed days of plenty. There was ice cream, actually two dishes of it, pink and white, and cake and fruit and distracting French bonbons, and in the middle of the table four great bouquets of hothouse flowers. It quite took their breath away, and they stared first at the table and then at their mother, who looked as if she enjoyed it immensely. Is it fairies? asked Amy. It's Santa Claus, said Beth. Mother did it, and Meg smiled her sweetest in spite of her gray beard and white eyebrows. Aunt March had a good fit and sent the supper, cried Jo with a sudden inspiration. All wrong. Old Mr. Lawrence sent it, replied Mrs. March. "'The Lawrence boy's grandfather? What in the world put such a thing into his head? We don't know him!' exclaimed Meg. "'Hannah told one of his servants about your breakfast party. He is an odd old gentleman, but that pleased him. He knew my father years ago, and he sent me a polite note this afternoon, saying he hoped I would allow him to express his friendly feeling toward my children by sending them a few trifles in honor of the day. I could not refuse, and so you have a little feast at night to make up for the bread and milk breakfast.' That boy put it into his head. I know he did. He's a capital fellow, and I wish we could get acquainted. He looks as if he'd like to know us, but he's bashful, and Meg is so prim she won't let me speak to him when we pass, said Joe. As the plates went round, and the ice began to melt out of sight with ohs and ahs of satisfaction. "'You mean the people who live in the big house next door, don't you?' asked one of the girls. "'My mother knows old Mr. Lawrence, but says he's very proud and doesn't like to mix with his neighbors.' He keeps his grandson shut up when he isn't riding or walking with his tutor, and makes him study very hard. We invited him to our party, but he didn't come. Mother says he's very nice, though he never speaks to us girls. Our cat ran away once, and he brought her back, and we talked over the fence and were getting on capitally, all about cricket and so on, when he saw Meg coming and walked off. I mean to know him some day, for he needs fun. I'm sure he does, said Joe decidedly. I like his manners, and he looks like a little gentleman, so I have no objection to your knowing him, if a proper opportunity comes. He brought the flowers himself, and I should have asked him in if I had been sure what was going on upstairs. He looked so wistful as he went away hearing the frolic, and evidently having none of his own. It's a mercy you didn't, Mother, laughed Jo, looking at her boots. But we'll have another play sometime that he can see. Perhaps he will help act, wouldn't that be jolly? I never had such a fine bouquet before, how pretty it is and Meg examined her flowers with great interest. "'They are lovely, but Beth's roses are sweeter to me,' said Mrs. March, smelling the half-dead posy in her belt. Beth nestled up to her and whispered softly, "'I wish I could send my bunch to father. I'm afraid he isn't having such a Merry Christmas as we are.'"